be seated. If you've been around church the last few Sundays, then you have a sense that we are teaching this class on Sunday mornings at 9 that um, we're calling, uh, if I could just tell you one thing. And each of us priests are seeking to leave you with that one thing that we would leave you with if we could only communicate a single thing about living into the faith itself. And if you were around here last Wednesday and you came to that class, then you know what mine is. Last week, I showed you my cards. It should come as no surprise to you that the one thing that I, Jimmy Bartz, would leave you with is sacred story. And I mean sacred story that is liberated from, you know, this hundred or maybe a little bit longer, a little bit shorter, this, this century of fundamentalism and literalism that has calcified and destroyed, disempowered the story. I mean the story that is liberated from the cultural confines that we struggle to hear it with these days. I mean like the meta story, the one that begins with chaos and ends in sort of beautiful, mystical, curious apocalypse and all that is in between those two beautiful moments. And I have a sense that if you have been around this church for a while, you have a sense that it is story that animates me and my faith. I love to do what I'm doing right now. There is an aspect of being a preacher that requires you maybe more than as a listener, but as a listener, the, the expectation is there too, to join the story itself, to take off your shoes and roll up your pants and wade in to this curious, powerful, loving, confounding story that we call uh, the Bible from the Jewish scriptures through the Christian scriptures and maybe little influences that hurtle into that story all along the way. As it relates to the Bible, particularly the Christian scriptures, this morning we have one of those episodes that's a high point for the narrative itself. And we may not exactly hear it that way, but trust me, it is. Biblical scholars, particularly Christian biblical scholars, reading the Gospels, call the beginning of the episode that we have for this morning the farewell discourse. John's Jesus giving his last instruction and direction, particularly to, but not exclusive to, particularly to his 12 disciples. 
to set the scene, what's happening during this particular episode is that we find ourselves in the previous chapter in the Last Supper. And you remember the story itself as it's told through the lens of John's gospel. It's Jesus doing something that is remarkably earthy, very human, maybe to some of us even a little off-putting. He strips his fancy robes. He ties an apron around his waist. He kneels down and he washes the disciples' feet. As he quite literally disrobes, he metaphorically disrobes from all the pretension and honor and caste that puts Rabbi Jesus above those disciples. He takes a place beneath them, and in a wonderfully human way, he does this incredibly affectionate, tender and intimate task and then that's where the teaching and the story begins today and what we have in John's farewell discourse is the full spectrum of who Jesus is all throughout these four chapters <laughs> I just said these four chapters, <laughs> all throughout these four chapters, the pendulum swings the full distance. On one side of the story, in parts of these particular chapters, we have Rabbi Jesus. And by that, I mean like teacher Jesus, brother Jesus, fully human, somebody that we connect with right here in the here and now. And we also have the full swing of the pendulum where we come over to this side and we have this like cosmic Christ, this poet, mystic, God, like little g God who is so big that it stretches and proceeds well beyond the boundaries of our wildest imaginations, especially as we sit over here in the human experience. It is a curious piece of biblical literature. This particular set of chapters, John's farewell discourse, is compared to like the fifth chapter of Matthew that we call the Sermon of the Mount or the Beatitudes, Jesus's vision for what the future of creation looks like, or it's compared to the power of the parables of Luke's gospel. What I mean to tell you is two things. The first thing that I mean to tell you is this is a big deal. Like this is a big scene in the whole Jesus story. And the second thing I need to tell you that I intend to tell you is that this is a part of the story where we find ourselves in flux or in transition 
or in a period of change. Like change is hanging in the air and it's so thick that we can cut it with a knife. And here's what I know. Here's what I know, particularly as it relates to religious people, maybe even more particularly as it relates to Episcopalians, those of us who are liturgical, traditional Christians, I know that change is hard. And that in those moments, in those episodes of our life, when we are stuck between one place and the other, we really struggle. It's all over the story. The story begins from the voice and stays for the most part as we have it today from the voice of the cosmic Christ. So as we move from the last verse of chapter 13 into the first verse of chapter 14, the voice of the narrator changes permanently. It begins to change in chapter 13, but now we're fully in to the embodiment of the cosmic Christ, that big poet, mystic Christ that we hear. And it lands in curious phrases and it, it elicits emotion from the disciples that we need to pay careful attention to. Jesus, as the gospel is opening, describes or begins to describe from that cosmic place this path that he must undertake. I am going before you, he says. I will be out in front of you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to call you to that place. It's a beautiful place. There are many opportunities to find security and nurture and healing in this very eclectic and expansive space. And I want you to know, I'm right out in front of you. And Thomas, again, is that brave disciple. Lord, Lord, what are you talking about? We have no idea where you are going. We do not know the way. And the cosmic Jesus responds in this beautiful way. He says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. Okay, time out. <laughs> time out. Time out. This is important. This is so important to have this little episode of time out here. Because we hear these stories, whether we want to or not, through a fundamentalist, literalist, cultural lens, whether it's religious fundamentalism or secular fundamentalism. And if you are hearing this line, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, if you are hearing this as if my God is just a little bit better or an awful lot better than your God, you are missing the message of the cosmic Christ. You are thoroughly stuck over in a world of competition rather than entering into a beautiful cosmic place 
of unification. The, one of the greatest heretical interpretations of Christian scripture in our day is this sort of crusader-esque idea that my God, like, yeah, I love my Jewish friends. I love my Muslim friends. They're my Abrahamic cousins. But I know what I have is a little bit better. If that's the way you hear it, please erase that from the hard drive. If it is in the cloud, go up into the cloud, get it, put it on the desktop, and delete it. That is not what he is talking about. Time out over, back to the cosmic Christ. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is this beautiful moment where all of creation and all of its creatures at the same time that we're over here with dirty feet and we're hungry, that the cosmos is pushing us all right into the middle of one thing where we find ourselves and everything else unified. I am sure that Jesus' response did not temper Thomas's anxiety. In the next moment, in the next moment, G John's Jesus continues with what I like to call like um, uh, uh, theological algebra. And it's Philip this time that becomes the voice of our timidity and our anxiety around hanging out in this cosmic place. Like, Lord, Philip says like, Jesus, Jesus, you know? Like, <laughs> please, just show us the Father. Just put him right here, right in front of my eyes. And Jesus, the cosmic Christ Jesus, responds with, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and I am in you. Anyone who knows me knows the Father. Anyone who knows the Father knows me, and therefore you will be recognized. Do you think that that tempered Philip's anxiety? Probably not. Living between these two worlds that we live between as people of faith, being in transition is hard. I will tell you a story of my own life in hopes that the story of my life will remind you a story of your life, the story that is in your past or the story that you're living in this very moment in time. In 2014, I was the grateful recipient of a generous sabbatical grant. In 2006, I left the comfort of All Saints Beverly Hills, an institutional, large, healthy, traditional congregation, and I, along with a band of others, a couple of them who are wonderfully, strangely, cosmically in this room right now, left the comfort of a traditional church, all we know, to start a funky kind of rock and roll, hippie, Episcopal experience that we called Thads for Thaddeus, 
one of the 12, but the only thing you know about Thaddeus is his name. There's no action assigned to Thaddeus. So it was like sort of like Fight Club. Like the first thing about Thads is that, you know, you don't talk about it. You just go and you just do it. You live it. And in 2006, I was in this place where the Bishop of Los Angeles said, you can do whatever you want to do as long as you can self-fund the startup of this church. I was like, I think we can do it. And then here comes 2008, right? It was like, wow, that whole self-funding thing's a little bit harder. But at Thads, we kept going up and up and up. But like every startup, it was grinding and hard we were the objects of so much criticism, and the vast majority of that criticism came from the church, like from the larger Episcopal community, who are really jealous of our success and our ability be, to be creative and have a little fun in church, when they were just like, you know, most of the time. And so there we were in 2006, working really, really hard. And in 2013, I was exhausted and I was like, man, I need a break. I need a sabbatical. I'm a little bit overdue for it. And so I wrote to um, um, Eli Lilly, um, Big Pharma funds clergy sabbaticals in a beautiful way. And I was the um, generous recipient of an incredibly um, luxurious experience. Um, the, the theme that I undertook was outdoors as sacred space and outdoor recreation as spiritual discipline. For four months, I started with a road trip where um, I went to spend some time at a ranch where I grew up as a kid in New Mexico. I went to Houston and spent some time with a scholar named Brene Brown. I flew to the United States Military Academy at West Point and spent some time with a positive psychology professor, Mike Irwin. I came back to Los Angeles where we were living at time. We picked up the whole family and we took them to Kauai, to the North Shore of Kauai, where all we did for one month, all we did, all we required ourselves to do was surf and do yoga. That's it. We did other things, but that's the only expectations that we held. We came home to Los Angeles for two days, we loaded up the car, and we came to, of all places, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where we spent two months, where I did a ton of fly fishing, and I climbed a bunch of the Tetons here, and Jas did therapeutic riding, and Jade and I got to climb together, and um, we just had a marvelous time as a family, and then Cindy and the kids went home, and, and I went on a Knowles course uh, into the winds. It was an amazing experience. And all the time, all that time that I was flooded with this privileged opportunity, I was struggling because I knew I was in between one place, this place that I had poured all of my blood, sweat, and tears into. I was in between fads and whatever was what was next. And I didn't know what was next. I remember lying on the living room floor of this house that we rented up near golf and tennis before I really even knew what golf and tennis was, <laughs> lying on that floor uh, in my early 40s going like, what, what am I gonna do? Like, just make it clear. Give me some sense of what's clear. Being in that place, stuck 
in between something that I have seen and experienced and in this other place that I knew was possible but was so frightening and so confusing. As human beings, we struggle with transition. We struggle with change. And those are real emotions. But we are required to straddle that chasm from exceedingly earthy and practical to mystical and poetic and cosmic and wonderful at the same time. That's the message of John's Jesus all throughout this farewell discourse. And, and, there's one thing that I want to leave you with in regard to this passage. And I should maybe qualify it first. If we are hearing it through the ears of the earthly, we will most certainly hear it as um, dissonant, as frustrating, as naive, as ignorant. Maybe it will even help arise some, some feelings of anxiety or anger or possibly even rage. But that is not the voice. The, the voice of the narrator is the cosmic Christ. So when you hear this, this line, this important line, I want you to hear it through the voice and the experience that you have in that cosmic way. Draw your mind to one of those moments in your life where you are like, man, I'm just in the flow of it all. Yesterday, I was up in Bozeman, standing on the sidelines in Paradise Valley. My 17-year-old daughter Jade's lacrosse team is out on the field. They're winning, and they're winning big. I'm hanging out with some of you. Um, we're talking about, and I'm like, these are the days. These are the days. Like, savor it, Jimmy. Savor it. Let it in. Look what's happening. This beautiful place, these beautiful girls, these wonderful friends. Like, it's all there. That's, that's the lens through which I want you to hear this message. Not the lens of when you opened your news app this morning you saw that nine other people had been killed by gun violence, and you began to experience despair. It's a real part of who we are. It's important for us to address these in a human way, but I want you to be over here, just here, just right now, and hear the very first thing that Jesus says when he begins to address the expanse. He says to his 12 his closest friends, his closest compadres, the people that he loves the most, he says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Brothers, sisters, Siblings in Christ, 
on this side of the spectrum, these are very troubling times. And we live in them, and we feel them. We do. And on this side of the spectrum, just as real, just as present moment, just as much of a part of reality, he says to us, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Amen.